1 John chapter 3, and we will be covering verses 1 through 3. I've entitled this morning's sermon, What Kind of Love Is This? And for our worshipers in training, your key words are children, hope, and pure. So please join me in 1 John, and we will be covering chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. But I want to begin reading in verse 28 to cover the last two verses that we discussed last week. So 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 28. And now, little children, abide in Him, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. If you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. Because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. If you remember from last week, if you were with us in verses 28 and 29, we talked about abiding in Christ, abiding in Jesus, that we would be confident when Jesus returns. That we would be hoping in the second coming of Jesus. We'd be praying like the Apostle John at the end of Revelation. Jesus, come quickly. That we would hope that Jesus would come. That He would be in our midst and that we would see Him in His second coming. And that our abiding in Christ gives us the confidence to stand before the Lord and not shrink away. Not be ashamed. Because we are striving to fulfill all that God has commanded. We are striving for holiness. We are striving to live in the righteousness of Christ. Remember the passage taught us that Christ is righteous. And therefore, our knowing this and our trusting this, and now that we are children of God, we possess this righteousness. The righteousness of Christ has been imputed to us. It has been placed on us. It has been given to us. So that as God looks on us, He sees the righteousness of Christ. And those who will shrink away at the coming of Christ will be those who have neither the desire nor the capacity for holiness. And remember last week, I reminded you, and I think it's good to remind you again this week, that we are justified. We are made just. We are able to stand before God 
as justified sinners by the grace of God through our faith apart from any works of the law, apart from anything that we can do. So the righteousness that we strive for, the holiness that we live in, is a proof of this justification. It is not what justifies us. It's what shows that we are justified. We have been made new. We have been made to be like Christ. And so, John took all of that and called us to abide in Christ. And he continues that thought this morning in the first three verses of chapter 3. So we will look at uh, three different areas in each verse. Number one will be, what kind of love is this? Number two will be future glory, being like Christ. And number three will be hoping in Jesus is being purified in Jesus. So we begin with number one. What kind of love is this? Read verse one with me again. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. As John considers this great reality that everyone who practices righteousness has been born again, he rejoices in the proclamation of the great love of the Father. He says, see, look at how great the Father's love is. And he says, what kind of love is this? He's astonished. It's like saying, how great this is. How wonderful. How majestic this love is. And it also implies something that is foreign. So he could in essence be saying, what kind of country does this love come from? It is completely foreign to our understanding, this love of God that He has given to us. We hear a lot of talk in our day about the love of God. Some of it's good, but I think a lot of it is misinformed and fairly shallow. So as I consider with John, what kind of love is this with which the Father loves us? I am most immediately drawn to the Gospel of Jesus Christ. The depth of love displayed in the Gospel is the epitome of love. It is a love that we cannot fully comprehend. And I also believe that this is something that is often repeated and has a misinformed understanding. The Bible tells us that God's love for us is a great love with which He loves us. In Ephesians chapter 2. So let me take a minute to show you something I think is important here because I think we need to make sure we understand God's love properly in the context of the Gospel. I think that the vast majority of Christians in the world will tell you that the Gospel is best defined by John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Amen. That's a great and glorious reality. 
But what must be understood is this. That this love, this John 3.16 love, has to be held in proper union with the great reality of justification by grace through faith apart from works of the law. John 3.16 in and of itself has a condition. Whoever believes, that is the condition, belief. And if God's love is conditional, we have work to do in that because we may wake up tomorrow and not believe. But hear me out here because I don't want you to understand this wrongly. The thing that makes John 3.16 amazingly loving and glorious for all of us is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Hear the words of the Apostle Paul. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Do you see it? John 3.16 is the love of God when we understand that it is because of God that we believe in the first place. And because of God that we continue on believing. It is, Paul says in verse 4 of Ephesians 2, a great love with which God loves us that He has made us alive with Christ. This is the great love that John is referring to in verse 1. The great love that comes to people like you and I who are dead in our trespasses and sins. Those who are His enemies. Not His children. His enemies. And He makes us alive. The greatness of the love of God is magnified in that He gives us spiritual life. That is, the new birth. Which we talked about last week. Those who have no claim on God at all are called from darkness to light and are given new life. We were spiritually dead 
And in our deadness, we were walking in lockstep with God's arch enemy, the devil. And the justice of God would have been completely fulfilled in a righteous and holy manner were we punished eternally in that condition. But God made us alive in a display of the greatness of His love. You owe your spiritual life and all of its impulses, all of its desires to do good, to walk in righteousness, or to even wake up tomorrow with belief. Not to your ability to get it, or to make a right decision, or to read the right things, or to be raised in the right family, in the right place, at the right time. You owe it all to the love of God. Because when He saw you as a wretched, vile sinner, He called you out of darkness and into the light anyway to make you a new creation. Praise God. So let me take a minute to break down the love of God into four types of love. I think there's more than four since God is love, but we want to focus on these main areas. I think they're important that we really understand the love that John is so amazed with and is focused on. Four types of love. The first is a saving love. This is evidenced in the new birth that we are born again, which I just mentioned a moment ago. And this is what John was explaining in verses 28 and 29 of chapter 2. Abide in Him so that when He appears we may have confidence. And if you practice righteousness, you have been born of Him. The righteous are those who have been born again as a result of this saving love of God. That God loves us in a saving way. By showing us grace. By giving us grace. And giving us new life. God also displays a sacrificial love. God's love is displayed to us in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Jesus bore the whole wrath of God and died for His enemies that they would become His bride, the church. That's sacrificial love. 
That's a great love. Third is an undeserved predestined love. Before the foundations of the world, God chose for Himself a people whom He would save and is saving. From His very own wrath to the praise of His glorious grace. This was, in the words of the Apostle Paul, done in love. Ephesians 1, 4-6, In love, God predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. It is undeserved. It is something of which we had no desire for because we were dead. And God, according to the purposes of His will, called us from that darkness into His glorious grace that we can stand as brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ. And in that light, the fourth love is an adopting love. God predestined His people, Paul writes in Ephesians 1, for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. That's what John is addressing in verse 1. The love of God is that which affords us the right to be called children of God. This means that we once were not children of God. We were like the rest of the world. We were dead. We were outside the family. Then God called us children and we became children of God. And notice the words, and so we are. We are called children of God, and so we are. The point is that God made us His children. This is the new birth again. God made us alive. This is adoption. God brought us into His family. By the sacrifice of Jesus... And it is, of course, undeserved on our part. So John looks at all of this, no doubt has this love in mind. And he is amazed. Just like the Apostle Paul was in Ephesians chapter 2, and just like you and I should be amazed by the love of God. The rebels, the enemies, dead unresponsive slaves to sin like us are made alive, are born again and adopted into the family of God as He makes us His children. John wants you to feel the wonder of that and I hope that you do. God loves the sinner not because He's drawn to him by His lovableness, but because in spite of man's unloveliness, God provides man with His greatest good. That's what's amazing about the love of God. It's a divine initiated love that is active and it seeks to bring us sinners into the family of God. Before we jump off of verse 1, let's look at the second part of it. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. 
It may seem a bit unrelated, but it's not. It relates to our adoption as sons of God. The reason the world does not know us is because we are sons of God and they are sons of Satan. We have different fathers and they do not know our father. Therefore, they do not know the father's children. And the children of God should be radically different from the children of Satan, which will eventually cause a hostile attitude toward the children of God. And this rejection, this hatred toward the children of God attests to the reality that those who are rejected are indeed children of God. This is what Christ warned His disciples of, included John, of the world's natural animosity towards His followers. And so now the Apostle is writing to his readers the very same thing. John has experienced that. As we've covered over the last three weeks through this whole letter, he's been fighting against that. Most specifically, he's fighting against those who are in the spirit of Antichrist and are working to teach falsely to destroy those who are within the church with heresy. And so John, in reminding us of the world's hatred for the church, gives us also great encouragement that to be one of God's children is to be treated as Jesus was treated. And to be treated in such a manner is to have something to cling to with assurance that we are truly the children of God. Number two, verse two, future glory, being like Christ. Let's read verse two. Beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. John addresses them again, beloved or loved ones or dear friends. John's love for his readers no doubt is intense because he sees us. He sees you in your shared love with Him for the Father. The Apostle John is our Brother, because of our adoption in Christ. Notice he says, we are God's children now. This is why we call each other brother and sister. Because we are members of the same family. A family is not the blood that flows. A family is who our Father is. Our Father is God. Our Father is who we follow, who is over us, and whom we love. And so all in this world from ages past into eternity that call God Father are our brothers and our sisters. We are adopted sons and daughters of God. And we are the loved ones of God in a family together with God's people. 
John alludes to this all throughout the letter as he addresses his audience. And here he's saying, if we truly understand the privilege of being adopted into the family of God, of being the children of the living God, then we will also realize that it is one of the qualities of children to bear resemblance to their parents. Not just physically, but morally to be like them. And so John says that those who are children of God already do bear a resemblance to their heavenly Father. And one day they will bear a perfect resemblance to Him. In other words, while we are now children of God, we are not bearing the image of God perfectly. There is still weakness. There is still sin. There is still a failing nature within us. But one day when the Lord comes again, we will be made perfect. We will be made like Christ. John says, think about it. Because we are children of God, we have already begun to bear resemblance to our heavenly Father. This is how it is with children. Look at her. She's like her Father. She acts like her father. She reminds me so much of her father. And this is a glorious thing if it's a reality in your life. Let me ask you to consider this. How frequently do others look at your life and think, he or she reminds me of the heavenly father? How often do others look at you and say, When I see Him, I see something of God who has revealed Himself in the Scriptures because that person's character has been molded in the image of God. How do you resemble your Father? How do you remind others of your Father in your life? Right now, those of us here this morning who have been born again and who bear evidence of that being born again by growing in the likeness of Christ, we are children of God. And because of that intimate relationship with the Creator of the universe, right now in this time we have full assurance that God is our Father and is for us. And right now we possess eternal life. The benefits of being children of God in this time and in this place are inexhaustible. They're endless. And yet John's point is to say here that as good as it is to be God's children now and in this life, it's only a small sliver of what is in store for us in the future. What we shall be has not yet appeared. Exactly what we will be is yet to be sure of. But this we can be sure of. And we talked about this a few weeks ago. We will continue to be God's children throughout eternity if in fact we are the children of God. And there is nothing greater that we can become than children of God. But there's still much for us to grasp in the reality of us being children 
of God. The Apostle Paul says it this way, Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man all that God has prepared for them that love Him. This is very encouraging. You are receiving the benefits of a child of God right now. You are receiving your inheritance as a child. And yet something even far greater awaits you. Namely, glorification. You will, as an adopted son or daughter of God, one day live in perfection. That's amazing. And as if that was not great news already. John continues on to say that we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. Friends, that's our future. That's our destiny. That's our eternal reality. We shall be like Jesus. It is impossible to imagine anything of greater excellence for us in this especially when we take an inventory of our lives at this moment. Even the most God-glorifying, sin-rejecting, faith-keeping, growing in daily grace person in this room right now is still filled with sin. There are massive sinful realities in our lives that Christ has only begun to work out within us. But the glorious promise of this verse is that it will happen. Not only in this life where we walk in Christ-likeness, but a day is coming when we shall be changed, when we will be transformed, and we will be like Him. What a glorious reality. What a deep comfort. What an amazing truth. We, you and I, shall be like Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Of course, this does not mean we will become Him. We will always be human. He will always and forever be God incarnate. Jesus, together with the Father, will always be the sole recipients of our worship and the source of life and light. We will forever live in eternity to be praisers of His glory but we will be like Him. To whatever extent it is possible for humans to be like Jesus, we will be. That means that we will have the same affections as Jesus. The perfect, holy affections that are that of Christ. What He loves, we will love. What He enjoys, we will enjoy. What He hates, we will hate. What He values, we will value. He will never sin. We will never sin. He will never experience pain again. You and I will never experience pain again. His cup will always be overflowing with joy. Our cup will always be overflowing with joy. This is infinitely glorious. And I cannot conceive of anything greater to be desired than that. Our hearts were made for God and are restless until our rest is found in God and in being like Jesus 
And our rest in God will be consummated in that we will experience life in perfection with Jesus. I was reading a story in preparation for this morning and the writer recorded that when he was working with some native converts as a missionary, they were translating the Bible into their language and they came to this phrase. They came to this verse and they put their pens down. And he just thought and sat. And eventually he exclaimed, No! It is too much! Let us simply write, We shall kiss His feet! But no, the Word of God is clear. We will be like Jesus. This truth ought to have some tremendous weight to it for you. You will be as Jesus is in holiness in a resurrected body. Our face-to-face encounter with the risen Lord will complete our process of redemption as we are glorified. So what we are now as children of God is wonderful. I don't want to minimize that. But what we shall be is far greater, is far more wonderful. So what will bring this about? What will be the cause of our transformation at this letter? John answers this at the end of verse 2. We know that when He appears we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. Our unrestrained, unhindered sight of Jesus in all of His glory, in all of His moral excellencies, in all of His perfection will be so stunning will be so real and breathtaking and irresistible that we're going to see once for all how ridiculous it was to have been enamored with the fleeting pleasures of this world. The sins of our flesh and the lust of our eyes and the pride of this life is all going to appear as gravel in comparison to the diamond-studded brilliance of Jesus And beholding Jesus in this way, in all of His glory, will be absolutely irresistible. It's going to swallow us up and we will not be able to help being transformed into His likeness. We won't be able to resist it because we won't want to resist it. Our admiration of Him will be so total and all other competing roles will be left to the dust forever. You know, we become like those whom we admire. When Jesus comes, we shall see Him just as He is. And our admiration of Him will be absolute. And we shall become like Him. What a glorious hope for the future. The future is bright, friends. It is very, very bright and very encouraging. Third and lastly, verse 3, hoping in Jesus is being purified in Jesus. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. So what is the impact of this? How does the future reality affect us today? John is making that known in verse 3. Everyone who hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Do you hope in God? 
Do you hope in the future glorification when you will be like Jesus? If so, you will be filled, not with apprehension, but with confidence. Hope is trusting in what God promises in the future. And your hope rests on a solid foundation that has consequences for living in this world as a Christian. To know God, to be as Christ is, albeit imperfect at this point, is to live in purity, to live in a pure life. In Matthew 5.8, Jesus tells us, the pure in heart will seek God. Being born of God creates a vibrant hope for the future, one that motivates us to live purely in everyday life. Hope also produces joy. Life without hope is bleak. In 1 Corinthians 15:19, the apostle Paul wrote, "If in Christ we have hope, in this life only, we are all we are of all people most to be pitied." The most devastating misery The severest of miseries is when your hope is wrapped up in this life here and now. If you have nothing to hope for beyond this life, that is the ultimate misery. Because this life is but a vapor that appears for a short time, but then it vanishes away. This life is very, 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 very brief. And it is filled with troubles. And if you tie everything in your life up in what happens here and now, in your gold, in your money, in your false religious systems of the world, you are in a state of severe misery and above all people, most to be pitied. Romans 8, 23-25 reads, And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Paul is saying we have a salvation, the greatest part of which is yet unrealized. And that is all bound up in our hope. It is wonderful to experience the joys of salvation in this life. Indeed, we should. But it compares very little to that which God has prepared for us when our hope, when our eternal hope becomes an eternal reality. The true and fullest benefits of salvation have yet to be realized, but we hold on to them in hope. And this hope that John described includes three primary factors. Christ's appearing, the believers actually seeing Christ, and the believers becoming as Christ is. So hope involves a confident expectation of the future, a trust in God's provision, and the patience of waiting for Him. So here it is in simplest terms. Our hope is in Jesus. 
Our hope in this life is that we are saved by Jesus. Our hope is that we are being purified by Jesus. Our hope is that Jesus is giving us the patience to await His return. Our hope is that we are being sanctified in Jesus. We are being made more and more into what God wants us to be. Our hope is in the return of Jesus. And our hope is in the life to come with Jesus. You see, our hope is in Jesus now and forever. Jesus is our hope forevermore. Not a system of religion. Not a devotion to a specific cause. Not a church membership or a service project or a teaching position in a Sunday school class. Not in baptism. No. Jesus. Our hope is in Jesus and that's it. And if Christ's likeness is our future, should we not be pursuing that now? If we are truly admiring Jesus now and hoping in Jesus now, we will be taking on more and more and more of His characteristics. It is absolutely hypocritical to say that we have hope in Jesus that we will one day be like Him, but do not seek to be as He is today. You should be yearning to be like Jesus. You should want to desire the things that Jesus desires. You should love the things that Jesus loves. You should want to be pure as Jesus is pure. And if you hope in Jesus, you will. John writes, purify yourself because Jesus is pure. And hoping in Jesus is a longing to be like Jesus. Remember verse 29? If you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. And now John writes in verse 3, And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. So those who are born again, the children of God, are those who practice righteousness and strive for purity. This is a test for you and me. Are we striving to practice righteousness? Are we striving to live our lives in purity? This is John's very clear ethical challenge. Since the Son of God is absolutely righteous and absolutely pure, and since we will be like Him when He returns, if we are truly the children of God, we must fight hard to purify ourselves and to live a life of righteousness. Continually, on and on, until that magnificent, glorious hour when Christ returns and we behold His glorious face. How do we do it? We look back at verse 28 from last week. We abide in Christ. We abide in Jesus. We remain close to Jesus. We walk in a manner that is pleasing to Jesus. If you want to be righteous, if you want to be pure, abide in Jesus. Because it is Jesus alone who is fully righteous and fully pure and fully worthy of following and is fully worthy of our worship. Those who have seen Jesus face to face 
will not sin. Those who contemplate and hope in their future with Him are being purified from sin and will be ultimately purified when they see Jesus and will no longer be sinners. To be children of God is to have spiritual and moral qualities and capacities like Jesus and to have a single, all-embracing, all-transforming passion to glorify God by enjoying and displaying His superior excellencies in every sphere of this life as we wait for His return. When we will all be able to stand before the Lord with confidence because we have walked faithfully with Jesus. And that is John's exhortation and encouragement. Abide in Jesus and hope in Jesus. Live for righteousness and strive for purity. And if you do, in the end, you will see Jesus in His glorified state and be cleansed and purified forevermore. Amen.